Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. I'm Devika Girish. And I'm Clinton Krupp. We're the editors of Film Comment. This week's podcast features a conversation with Ira Deutschman, the director of the new documentary, Searching for Mr. Rugoff. The film explores the life and work of the infamous movie theater impresario, Don Rugoff. In a 1975 film comment profile, Stuart Byron writes that Rugoff might be best remembered as the man who made, quote, Manhattan's Upper East Side rather than Times Square, the prime area for motion picture exhibition in New York, substituted Colombian coffee for popcorn, and to the chagrin of critics like Andrew Saris and the delight of those like John Simon, turned movies into films, end quote. Ira, a longtime producer and distributor, has a secret film comment connection. In the 90s, he penned the magazine's anonymous industry column, Gross's Gloss. To pick Ira's brain about his days working for Rugoff, his extensive knowledge of the New York City exhibition landscape, and the transformation of the indie business over the last half century, we invited a special guest host, film comment publisher and industry vet Eugene Hernandez. We hope you enjoyed their conversation. This is Eugene Hernandez. I'm publisher of Film Comment, frequent listener, frequent reader. Happy to be contributing to this edition of the Film Comment podcast and pleased to welcome our guest, Ira Deutschman. Ira, welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here. I was saying to you before we started recording, Ira, that it was really meaningful for me to have the opportunity to rewatch your film recently and to know that we would be talking about the film today on the podcast because, uh, and we'll talk about this in a moment, you have not only uh, an illustrious history in film culture in New York, film distribution, filmmaking in, in this capacity now, but also film distribution, and also a history with film comment. So we're gonna talk about that. But just thank you for taking the time and we'll, we'll delve into some aspects of your career and also your uh, new film, Searching for Mr. Rugoff. Some of the folks who might be listening to this conversation today might have heard the name Don Rugoff, but others might be hearing it for the first time. Your film certainly introduces him and the complexity of Don Rugoff, but also the impact of this man. But maybe just as an introduction, so we can hear more of your voice than mine, if you're walking down the street and you're having a short conversation with someone, how would you describe Don Rugoff to the layperson who has no idea who that man is and where he goes from. It, it wouldn't actually have to be a layperson. My experience is that almost nobody has heard of him. And it's part of the reason why I decided to make the film was that I was realizing that even at industry events, people who I felt should have heard of him, that when I would bring up his name, that nobody had heard of him. When people ask me these days, like, well, so what's your film about? And I go, well, it's about this guy you've never heard of. And you go, well, try me. Give me, you know, I say, well, his name was Don Rugoff. They go, I've never heard of him. I said, yeah, exactly my point. But he was a distributor and exhibitor who operated in New York from the late 1950s until the late 1970s. And so for that 20 year period, he had a, a, a very large effect on movie culture, not only in New York, but around the country, because he was buying movies that nobody else had any interest in 
distributing them around the country and putting this enormous energy into trying to make these films be more commercial and more well-known than perhaps they had any right to be. Uh, he was a bit of a gambler in that respect. If something hit him as being, you know, having an angle of some sort that he thought he could exploit, he had no shame whatsoever in terms of what he would do to get people to pay attention to these films. But then on top of that, he also controlled, he inherited, and then he controlled the most beautiful chain of movie theaters that Manhattan has ever seen. It was a, a time in which the old movie palaces that had, had existed for, you know, since the turn of the century were in disrepair, that, you know, movie theaters had a very bad reputation. And Rugoff started building these absolutely gorgeous mid-century theaters that were specifically set up for film viewing, had the best projection, the best sound. They were plush to the point of being um, just incredibly classy places to see these films. And that also had an enormous impact on the culture in that people started to think of movies as being a real cultural event as opposed to just going to the movies and, you know, getting popcorn and a soda. So that's, you know, that's who he was as a, you know, as a business story. But what I think makes his story more interesting is that he was also quite an iconoclastic character um, and, and in many ways, ways feared and hated in the business and certainly was very, very tough on his employees. And the intriguing thing from my perspective is that for a man who was as important and as well known in the business as he was at the time, that he then just disappeared. He just pretty much vanished. And I didn't really think that much about it when that happened because I was still in having a little bit of PTSD about having worked for him. But, um, uh, you know, and in a certain for, in a certain fashion, I felt like his disappearance was comeuppance for some of his behavior. But years later, I realized that uh, I was curious what happened to him. And it made me start to investigate. And, and that's how the film was born. You mentioned working for Don Rugoff. What year did you get a job? You talk about it in the film, how you got the job. Remind me what year you started working for him. I, it was 1975, September of 1975. I got a job as a, a non-theatrical salesperson, meaning that my job was to call up colleges, libraries, prisons, parks departments, any, any place where you could rent 16 millimeter copies of the films that were controlled by his company, by Rugoff's company, uh, which was called Cinema 5. So I was literally a salesperson getting on the phone and talking to people who booked these film series around the country and trying to talk them into booking these movies. But during um, a three and a half year period, I went from non-theatrical sales to theatrical sales, to theatrical marketing, to co-op advertising, to acquisitions. You know, there's a reason why I went up so quickly within the organization, having to do again with Rugoff's bad behavior. He would fire people so often and he always tried to hire from within because that would be cheaper than bringing somebody in who actually had experience. But it's really how I learned the entire film business was by working in every single department at this relatively small distribution exhibition company. So, okay, so let's dig into this then. So it's, it's 1975. This is your first full-time job That's working correct. in film. Mm -hmm. So it's 46 years ago. Paint for us a picture because we're going to talk in a little bit about sort of where we are now in film culture and the world that you're releasing this film into. 
paint for us a picture of, and you touched on it a bit in sort of Rugoff's impact, but what were the elements and the, the foundational aspects of film culture, whether in New York or, or nationally in 1975? Complicated question. In 1975, we were at the, at the moment when the new Hollywood had really taken hold and was really controlling the film culture. So the kinds of things that Rugoff distributed, the foreign language films, independent documentaries, things like that, were already beginning to wane a little bit. Rugoff's success during that period, and he had a number of successes at, at that moment in the mid seventies, were really exceptions because a lot of the stuff that had worked in the sixties and into the early seventies was being usurped by the studios. One of the things that I've always said, and it's true to this day, but, but I learned this very, very quickly, is that, that almost all innovation in the film business comes from the in independent sector. And then when there is a success, whatever that success is, the studios either buy it out or they copy it. And because they have the money to back up activities that smaller independent companies wouldn't have, they tend to flatten the business for everybody else until they realize that it's really not a big business. And then they start backing out of it. And then there's opportunity for a new wave of independence to come in. When I started, it was one of those moments where the studios were beginning to take back the business from the independence. The very first film that was released right at the time when I was just starting to work there was Monty Python and the Holy Grail. And that was a film that was an enormous success. It was the biggest film that Rugoff ever distributed. And it's a great example of the sort of thing that he did so well in that nobody had heard of Monty Python. Almost every distribution company, including all the major studios, had turned it down. Rugoff, in his skewed version of the world that only he could see, looked at that movie and said, oh, okay, there's something interesting here, and began the process of doing a lot of crazy stunts and you know all kinds of great advertising gimmicks and things like that to get the attention that that made that film into a hit. You know again Monty Python was was not a thing yet. The film was really what turned them into a thing. It was already their show was already on PBS but it didn't have a very big audience. So, you know, it's it's a great example of him going against the grain, which is to say that you know the studios had sort of taken hold of the art film sector and we're filling it with films by Woody Allen and by Martin Scorsese and Paul Mazursky and, you know, folks like that. And that's what people were lining up around the block to see at these classic East Side theaters. And then Rugoff would just look slightly askew in some other direction for something that would stand out from the crowd. And, and so what was beginning to not work as much, which had been happening just prior to this period that we're talking about is that foreign language films were making money mainly because they were sexier than American films. But at the point at which the new Hollywood kind of took over, that wasn't true anymore. You know, those movies, if you look back at them now, are way sexier than anything that's in movie theaters today. So in any case, that, that's sort of the general environment. What's more instructive to me, if you want to really think about the sweep of history, is the moment when Rugoff first started the company, which was right after television began to take hold, where you know the, the invention of television had just reached the point where there was a critical mass of Americans who had TV sets in their living rooms, and where the you know there was ominous 
predictions of the death of theatrical movie going, you know, very parallel way to what's going on right now. And, you know, it's funny because the studios at that time reacted much like the way the studios are reacting now, which is they needed a gimmick of some kind to get people back into movie theaters. And they tried everything from 3D to widescreen to Dolby stereo sound. It's like, you know, it could throw any gimmick at the wall that you can to differentiate theatrical movie going from, from seeing something on their televisions at home. Whereas for the smaller independent companies like Rugoff's and others, the thing that they found that differentiated watching um, stuff at home was sex. And it was, I mean, that was just not available on your, on television at the time. So, you know, what's instructive about it to me is not that we're going through another cycle of everybody predicting the end of theatrical movie going, but more about the fact that the way to stop the end of theatrical movie going is to think about what's not being shown at home. How do you differentiate things? And, And I think you do see a lot of that going on even now. I realize I'm getting into stuff that you probably wanted to talk about later, but you know that's that's to me the the instructive historical period that really relates to what's going on today. Thank you for that context. It's really valuable, and I'm thinking of something that you established in the film early on to build on what you've just been talking about. You talked in the movie about Rugoff's role in legitimizing art cinema. So I want to delve, I want to dig into that a little bit. You're talking to Film Comment, you know, we're at Film at Lincoln Center, New York Film Festival, we're situated in a very specific place in response to and in celebration of art cinema. So I'd like to see if you could go a little deeper and maybe elaborate on how or what was Rugoff's role in legitimizing art cinema in the, in the city, in the States. But what does that even mean in the context of what you've just shared with us to legitimize art cinema? Why did it need to be legitimized and how was it legitimized by the work that that you, Rugoff, and, and your colleagues at that time, both at that company and then coming out of it, uh, were really thinking about? That's, that's a great question. And I actually do think that the film at Lincoln Center story, the New York Film Festival story, parallels the Rugoff story in the most important aspect of it, which is that even though film was considered an art by a fringe group of people who um, I always picture as being like the beat poets or something, you know, like they're meeting in basements and watching 16 millimeter prints of movies made by experimental filmmakers or, you know, watching things that they could not get in, you know, in uh, a traditional cinema. The thing that Rugoff did, which is again, parallel to something that, that the New York Film Festival did, was to put these fringe movies, these movies that were really out there in terms of what they were presenting to the world. And, you know, I mentioned sex already. Sex was a big part of it, but it was sex and drugs and the representation of cultures that people never saw on screen and films in different languages. And, you know, this wide range of of films that were available all over the world experimenting with the the dark edges of stories that you would never have seen in a mainstream cinema. And Rugoff built these gorgeous theaters that were on the Upper East Side of Manhattan, which is probably the most conservative area you could ever imagine, and managed to put these two things together in a way in which he was being very literal about film as art. You'd walk into these movie theaters and there would be legitimate original art on the walls. The architecture was just gorgeous. 
you were talking about, uh, you know, theaters that were across the street from Bloomingdale's. And, and then he would play a movie like Andy Warhol's Trash, which, you know, is even to this day is a hard movie to sit through because of the kinds of things depicted on the screen. And yet these blue haired ladies would stand in line for hours to go to see these movies. It's, it's that that I'm referring to in the movie in terms of legitimizing it. Legitimizing it meaning that, that it could be in the Museum of Modern Art or, by the way, part of Lincoln Center, which is exactly what the Film Society did before it was the Film Society, but the, but the New York Film Festival did. I've always felt like the, you know, the, the connection to Lincoln Center is an, a very important aspect of what you folks do because it, it has this, a similar effect of making something that you might think of as being very fringe into something that is actually side by side with the other arts and taken seriously. It's interesting to think, it's interesting for me to think about how all of these threads intersected, particularly in the early 60s when Lincoln Center was formed and the New York Film Festival was created. Coming out of, you talked about the Beat Poets in the Basements, that in a way is sort of a nod to what Amos Vogel was doing mm -hmm. uh, with Cinema 16 in the 50s. And then he comes to Lincoln Center and joins Richard Roud and founds the New York Film Festival. But then like, it feels like to me that Rugoff kind of picks up the mantle because the festival is one thing. The festival is like, you have the opportunity to see this film for one night or two nights at Lincoln Center. And then that's it. So there's sort of like a, it sort of validates it for, for a moment. It's like hanging it, you know, almost hanging that piece of art on the wall, but it's there for a very short time. So you want to sort of have that moment. But what Rugoff is saying is we're going to take that even further and we're going to make this film available to you any night of the week or, you know, multiple times a day at the East Side Cinema. And for the blue hairs that you're talking about, it, it kind of like also validates, like, it's not just that you have to, you can go to this festival and have a, a adventurous experience uptown at Lincoln Center, but you can walk around the corner from your apartment on Park Avenue and on a Tuesday night, watch the movie before or after dinner. And so it's like, it's like taking that one step further. And that's really what I think the distribution community that, that you were a part of and that's that's the foundation of which that you built upon in other in other companies that you worked at later in your career was sort of extending that experience of a film festival, which is so temporal and taking it out into the city more deeply or across the country. Yeah, I think the you know the major difference between showing a film at a festival and showing a film in a traditional theatrical run is that the the scarcity of the availability of the movie actually motivates people to think that there's an urgency to going to see it. Whereas the minute that people have this feeling that the film is going to be available for weeks on end or months on end or whatever, it, it, that, that urgency dissipates. And, and, and actually, in a way, if, if you think of that as being one of the central concepts of what works theatrically, it's a really useful thing to keep in the back of your mind because the, you know, the events that happened in the decades after Rugoff was operating, the advent of home video is something that I think trained audiences in a very, very negative way to realize that that scarcity didn't exist anymore, that if you miss a movie in a movie theater, it was going to pop up on, on at your local video store and you'd always get a chance to see it. So that that dissipated the urgency quite a bit more. And I think that we're dealing with an extreme version of that right now with the streaming situation in that, you know, I think audiences are, are not ever going to believe anymore that if they miss a movie in a movie theater, that it's going to like disappear on them. I once, the, there was a, a, a joke that wasn't so funny that I used to use 
um, when I was working at Cinecom was when I started using it. There was a, 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 a filmmaker who came to me with a film that he was trying to convince me was going to be a huge success because the musical group, the Weavers, which was what the film was about, um, the last time that they had played Carnegie Hall, 6,000 seats sold out in 20 minutes. And he was saying, you know, that th this is an indication of how much pent up demand there is for this subject matter. And that's why this film is going to be a hit. And I said, OK, I have a proposition for you, which is why don't we advertise that the movie is going to be shown for like one week only and then we're going to burn the negative. You're never going to be able to see it again because that's the only equivalency there in terms of the kind of urgency you have with a live event versus something that you know, could sit in a closet for 25 years and still be available for people to see. Now, mind you, we're not getting into preservation or any of that kind of stuff, but the, but the concept is all about how do you create urgency? How, how do you make people wanna run to see the movie in this limited period of time that it's gonna be available on the big screen? You're listening to the Film Comment Podcast. Sign up today for the Film Comment Letter. It's a free weekly digital newsletter featuring original film criticism and writing by Film Comment's editors and brilliant contributors. The letter delivers exclusive features, reviews, interviews, streaming picks, news, and more directly to subscribers' inboxes every Thursday before they're published on filmcomment.com the following Monday. Sign up today at filmcomment.com. We're talking, uh, I'm talking with Ira Deutschman about searching for Mr. Rugoff, his documentary that's opening in theaters and in virtual cinemas in August as we record this. It's, it's about to go out into the world. So uh, you might be listening to this after you've already seen it. And we might be uh, much later than August 2021. I want to ask you a little bit more about sort of these eras of film culture and film distribution before we talk even more about sort of where we are today. And also I want to talk a little bit about complicated aspects of Don Rugoff as a person. I'll come back to that because I think there's also some links, some links there to the moment mm -hmm. we're in. But let's just build on this foundation. We talked about the mid-70s. We kind of got into the 80s and sort of, you mentioned Cinecom. Your career as a distributor and a producer spans that era up to this present moment. But I was just thinking as I was re-watching the film, and I've, I had the good fortune of watching it a couple times over the past year or so. And I was thinking as I watched it recently, in what ways did Rugoff and the work he was doing and that colleagues of yours, yourself and others were doing with him, lay the foundation for the next chapter, a next chapter in sort of film distribution, film culture history that you get a lot of attention for, understandably, the late 80s into the 90s. So that, that moment, if we talked about what was happening internationally and how that related to film culture and film as art, but then we sort of switch and turn our lens towards what's happening within independent film in New York or in this country. Um, you know, we could certainly have a whole episode just talking, a podcast just talking about your role with, uh, you know, Sex, Lies and Videotape and Sundance in the late 80s and into the 90s. But help us understand how that foundation that we're talking about from the mid 70s into the 80s is something that folks like yourself and others could build upon into the 90s with this kind of real like focus on independent film as kind of a movement that really became something um, that we can talk tangibly about as well. You know, that period has this romanticism around it in terms of it being some, you know, wonderful, magical 
you know, golden age of independent film or whatever. And I don't really think of it that way. Um, maybe it's because I've seen too many cycles of ups and downs that make me understand that in a way I feel like it was a bubble. And that bubble, as most bubbles are, <laughs> was caused by um, a, a, a false economy that existed because of um, the home video boom that started in the early 80s and, and really peaked in the late 80s, where there was an enormous appetite for any kind of films that they could put on the shelf. If, as long as there were certain formulaic elements that were attached to it, you know, it had to be in English, it had to be in color, it had to be, um, you know, in theory, it had to have movie stars. It was, uh, you know, fed by um, the film festival world and by, a, you know, the, the, the press kind of turning in the direction of these types of movies. It coincided with the rise of Sundance, of course. And what it did was it created this false economy where, uh, you, you know, the, this, this joke, you know, used to have some resonance, but nobody knows what a sprocket hole any, is anymore. But I used to say that anything with sprocket holes would sell. And it really was that dramatic. So what that did was it fed a lot of money into the marketplace, money that was used to make movies, money that was used to support distribution companies and to support the kind of marketing money that was necessary to get those films out. If anything, the tail was wagging the dog in that most of these home video deals required a certain level of marketing spend and required these movies to be released in a certain number of markets. So that would justify uh, pouring a lot more money into the marketplace than was potentially necessitated by the particular movie. So, you know, all of those things were feeding this moment that created an enormous number of well-known and really well-loved films, but also an enormous amount of garbage that was uh, you know, being fed by this false economy. Ultimately, it led to what I would call the, the Miramaxization of the film business, of the independent film business, which I think was the lowest point in that the formula kind of took over. There was less feeling about doing something different or interesting than there was about repeating the formula of what would win Oscars, what would you know, what kind of casting would make sure that they had something that they could put in the poster that was going to attract attention and then blasting out unheard of sums of money to market these movies that, you know, the results would never have justified it with the exception of the one or two films a year that would break through and, and, and do business. So I don't think of that period as being a plus. And if anything, I feel like it fed a lot of the malaise that we're feeling right now because so many of the producers and distributors who operated at that time were unaware of the fact that they were working in a false economy. They, they were having a success on a level where, where they were making enough money that they could feel good about themselves and getting enough acclaim that they could feel good about themselves. And, uh, and then all of a sudden when that false economy burst the way that it, they always do, suddenly the world was coming to an end, whereas I feel like things just got back to normal. I was just thinking about, and I'm going to get the timeline wrong probably, but broadly speaking, looking at the era that we're talking about, you have, you talked about the Miramaxization. So you had the Weinstein brothers at Miramax, both pre and then Disney and then post Disney. You had Bingham Ray and Jeff Lipsky at October Films. You had Tom Bernard and Michael Barker at Sony Classics. 
And then you had you at Fine Line Features and then a bunch of other companies, of course, as well. But to what extent were all of these companies trying to kind of create a kind of momentum or were, was, there a, was there a concern or a fear about replicating something that was a little hollow or shallow? Or was the notion that like, if we all just kind of continue to push at discovering the next, you know, sex lies and videotape or whatever film it might be, that we could create something that was sustainable. In, re in retrospect, you can see what, what worked and didn't. I'm sure you can question like sort of how you viewed that era at that moment but hindsight can be 2020. So, so how do you look at it now, that particular era? You know, for me, it was a little bit different because I had been working in the business longer than a lot of those folks. You know, I witnessed, and this goes back to the whole Rugoff story, I witnessed Rugoff way overspending on a lot of movies that <laughs> ended up not doing well and ultimately combusting as a result of it. So that was always on my mind as I entered into other eras of my own career, I feel like I brought that with me when I was at UA Classics, and that was where I intersected with Tom Bernard and Michael Barker. And I, I do feel, I don't know whether they would agree with this or not, they probably wouldn't, but I feel like I brought the, um, what I would call, I guess, the rebound from my Rugoff experience into that company. And I think that a lot of their ethos, the way that they handle movies comes from that because they're, they're known as being a lot more conservative about the way that they spend money than a lot of other distributors do to their credit. I think that, you know, it's one of the reasons they're still around. You know, a lot of the companies that we were talking about don't exist anymore and for good reason. I was under enormous pressure when I was at Fine Line to compete with the wine states, to, co to go head to head with them, both on an acquisitions level, but also on a marketing level. And there were, and you did at times. I did at times. That's true. That's absolutely true. I remember a sales agent once. I was in the middle of a bidding war with uh, with the Weinstein's over a movie that showed at the Toronto Film Festival. And the sales agent at one point, after Harvey had just upped the offer again, you know, I paused for a moment on the phone and said, "Let me think about this for a second. And she literally said to me, "Just let them have it. I want you to be to stay in business." <laughs> it's like, you know, just let them buy the movie. Don't bid against them anymore. But yeah, I, I, I feel like- And that um, movie was? It was Priest. Do you know that movie? It was, yeah. yeah. And it did not do well. So she was right to call me off. So Ira, you mentioned Harvey Weinstein. And as I was watching, rewatching the film through maybe different eyes this week, I started thinking a lot more about Harvey Weinstein in relation to Don Rugoff, but I also started thinking about Scott Rudin because Rugoff, I mean, I don't know how many times I wrote down in my notes, he was so awful. Paula Silver, he was an ogre. Linda Wertmuller, I was drawn to his madness. Like all of these words that perhaps one could try to like romanticize, glamorize and sort of characterize someone as like, really hardworking and he was singular in his vision, but I can't help but like wince when I think about you and your colleagues who were interviewed in the film talking about the, you're able to sort of talk about it in a way that feels like you've, 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 you've been able to process it and you can sort of say, well, he was kind of crazy, he was kooky, but, and he looked out for me or, you know, various things that people say, but like, this does not sound like, kind of person that 
that you'd want to work for or defend. And then there's some strong links to some of the bad behavior we see that's happened in the in the film industry, even in, that's been uncovered and revealed. That's been going on in the film industry for a long time, but that's being revealed now. Yeah, I I, I think it's a good point. I entered into the process of trying to tell Rugoff's story with a much more negative perspective than the way the film turned out. And it was the people I talked to who changed my mind about him. Um, I, I really left with a very, very bad taste in my mouth. And, and mind you, I, I probed really hard when I was interviewing people for the film to try to see whether Rugoff ever crossed certain lines that would have really made it a, an, an awful story. And as far as I can tell, that never happened, that there was never any sexual aspect to it whatsoever. Um, if anything, he was incredibly protective of his employees in that regard. You know, as, as brutal as he could be, he could also be very kind in other ways. The brutality was more psychological and emotional. He would never have thrown a stapler at somebody the way that we know that you know Scott Rudin does or did. He would never have physically attacked anyone. And, and, he, and by the way, he didn't even yell. That's, it's so interesting. There was a moment um, in one of the interviews I did where somebody referred to the fact that he had this incredibly soft-spoken way of making you feel terrible without, without actually ever raising his voice. Um, you know, the, he was just a very peculiar character. I think the reason why people put up with it was because what we were working on was so exciting. And I think that that does have some parallels to some of the other people that you're talking about, who I think were way more brutal than Rugoff ever was, but where there does seem to be this connection between that kind of behavior and a sort of creativity that goes along with that, a, a view, a view askew of the world. Um, and it's 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 hard to 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 you know kind of put those things together in a way that that makes sense. But I'm not I don't necessarily feel that Rugoff is like a misunderstood person or something like that. I I, I mean there's good reasons, and I don't want to you know, give any spoilers, um, you know, for the movie, but there's good reasons for his behavior. Um, not, not good reasons in the sense of good and evil, but, but real reasons for his behavior uh, that ultimately do get revealed in the film. But that shouldn't be an excuse for it. He was just an interesting character. I feel like the tone that people use when they're telling these stories about him is, was true even in the days when we were all working for him, that the vast majority of what we experienced, we all experienced as actually being funny because it was such quirky behavior. And even though, though all those words that you said are true, he was an ogre, he would you know expect way more out of you than what you could give, that the slightest little thing that you did wrong would be something that you would get berated for. But he would turn around the next minute and like to put you in his limo and go get you ice cream. You know, I mean, it was uh, he, there was just something off about him. I have a longer interview with Costa Gavras than is what, what's in the film. And he talks about how 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 he uses the word crazy. He says he was crazy, but he says it in incredibly fond terms because he was just a really 
crazy person. <laughs> That's the, the best word to describe him. I'm going to leave that thread there, but just kind of noticeably, intentionally leave that there in the interest of time. But it's but it, but you bring up some really interesting points to kind of reflect on as, as, as how we think about what it takes to be a leader and 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 uh, an innovator and celebrated in film culture because it's a complex aspect. And I invite folks to consider that, uh, you know, there's, there's more of, of, of this to mine and explore and really think about. You brought up the fact that earlier before we started recording about how the movie begins with a quote about Steve Jobs, and he's another example of somebody who was a pretty despicable human being, and yet he's worshipped. So it, it's not just the film business. There is, there is a connection between, or, or I mean, there shouldn't be, but there is, between that kind of behavior and success. I was once chewed out by Harvey Weinstein in public because I was defending a filmmaker and he was screaming at me. And one of the things that came out of his mouth was that I was too nice. And that was the reason why he was richer than I was. The film is searching for Mr. Rugoff. Uh, we have maybe 10 minutes, Ira, here on the Film Comment podcast. You have a history and a connection to Film Comment. Tell us about that and how it began. I had just left fine line. And I got a phone call from the then editor of Film Comment asking me if I'd be interested in writing a what, what had become an annual piece called The Grosses Gloss. It was supposed to be a very comprehensive analysis of the success and failure of various companies, but also Film by film, we, we actually literally went through every film that had been released that year and tried to put it into categories by level of success and tried to create a, a kind of narrative out of it, you know, what, what was good or bad about this particular year. He asked me if I'd be interested in doing it. At the time, I was without portfolio, as you might say. What year was this? It would have been, oh my goodness, like 85 maybe? Does that sound about right? And the and I said yes. You know, I, I was a little intimidated by it because, frankly, the level of the writing in film comment, I wasn't sure whether I, whether I was capable of being up to that task. But I said I would do it, but under one condition, which is that it had to be under a pseudonym. And the reason why I felt like I needed to do that was because I wanted to be able to be honest about the successes and failures. And I also was still working in the business. And my feeling was that I didn't want to slam any doors either. So they agreed to allow me to do that. And I ended up writing that column for, I think it was seven years. It was exhausting doing it because I, I don't think I could ever do it now. But at that time, I was really closely tracking just about every film that got released. And so I was able to literally sit down and uh, and, and you know, look at the, the theatrical gross for the film, calculate in my head what the negative cost for that film might have been, what they probably spent in P&A, um, and, and, and what I thought might come in in terms of video money, et cetera, et cetera, and come up with a categorization as to whether that film was a huge success, whether it was a, a complete failure, or, you know, several categories in between. And then I divided, I, I, I felt very strongly um, that the chart needed to be divided up 
by small, tiny independent companies, mini majors and major studios, because I felt like the metrics for success or failure were completely different and, and not comparable in those three areas. So, um, so it was a very big job putting, it would take me weeks to gather all the data and, and then put it all together. And then at a certain point, I just decided that I was tired of doing it. And, and at that point, I, um, I literally came out of the closet as being the person who wrote the, wrote the, um, uh, wrote the piece for seven years and revealed my true identity in the pages of film comment. And the only phone call I got was from Michael Barker, who from Sony Classics, who took me to task for something I'd written about like three years earlier. <laughs> so, uh, but nobody else seems to have noticed. So, uh, so that was my, my history with phone comment. And just to fact check the dates, I think it was, was it, it would have been 95 when you started. Right, right, right. Because you right. left Fine Line yes, in 95. But just to yeah. correct the record, yeah. you, left, you left Fine Line in 95. So yeah. it would have been That's around right. that era. That's right, yeah. In the last few minutes, I, I think that one can't help but watch your film Searching for Mr. Rugoff without thinking about the moment that we're in now. And again, could be a whole other podcast chapter on figuring out and making sense of the moment we're in now. So we'll put that aside. But what do you think this film tells us, illuminates about the state of film culture and film distribution in late 2021 going into 2022? What does it tell us? What does it inform? What does it contextualize? What are the takeaways? I think that the takeaways now are actually slightly different than they were when I first completed the film. Uh, you have to put it in perspective and understand that the film had just premiered right before the pandemic started. And so at the time, what was on my mind was the idea that, that people who are in the business needed to be reminded how, first of all, glorious the theatrical experience could be, but also, more importantly, the fact that Rugoff's successes were all about him latching on to some aspect of a movie that he felt like he could work with to make noise, to, to create that sense of urgency that I was talking about earlier. And that, you know, he was just so creative and so clever about the ways in which he made people pay attention to these tiny little movies that nobody would have noticed had it not been for his aggressiveness. So that was what was on my mind pre-pandemic. What happened to the movie afterwards, and I've been told this by a lot of people, but I felt it myself re-watching the movie, is that it's, it's got an aspect to it now that's much more poignant because it feels like it's a, a, a little bit of a valentine to a lost moment in time when film was truly at the center of the culture in a way that I think is not necessarily true right now. And, and you know, I say that out loud while simultaneously thinking that there that it doesn't have to be true, but that it's certainly true right this second that if you, you know, you, I, I'm amazed that you could open up the arts and leisure section of the New York Times and there'll be one article about film when it used to be three quarters of it would be about film. And, and I, I just never thought I would live to see that day or just the fact that all these movie theaters are gone, that, that you know, the, for whatever reason, 
the real estate value of those locations has become way more profitable than uh, these things operating as movie theaters. So there's so to, to some extent, I think that my hopes now are still akin to what I was talking about earlier, but include the additional element of this emotional attachment to this moment in time and hoping that perhaps it would inspire some people to realize that this is something that could be done again, especially if they put it in the context of the fact that once again, when Rugoff first started operating, it was a moment when everybody was predicting that the movie business, the theatrical movie business was going to disappear. And that didn't happen. It didn't, it had a rocky period, but it didn't happen. I still believe that people, especially once the pandemic really disappears, that people are going to be desperate for out of the home activities, that the movies are still one of the most powerful and most inexpensive ways to have entertainment outside the home, no matter how expensive movies have become. Um, I do believe that there are some systemic issues that have to be dealt with, that the movie business will not be the same as it was. But by the way, it morphed during the 60s and 70s into something very different than what it had been in the 30s and 40s. So, you know, I, I think we're heading to something different and I'm hoping that the movie will inspire people to just simply think outside the box. Don't admit defeat. So often now I watch smaller independent distributors who have pretty incredible movies on their hands who release them in a way in which the, I look at what they're doing and I go, they've given up. They're, they're basically not doing anything to get anybody's attention to come see this in a movie theater. And I just think that, you know, there needs to be another generation. And there is, I mean, you know, people like companies like Neon and A24 and, you know, Magnolia and others are trying way harder to try to find those unique things that they can exploit. And the more important part of it is to take the next leap and go for it, to, to say, we can make this work, even though sometimes it won't, because that's what it's going to take to overcome this. Ira Deutschman's film is Searching for Mr. Rugoff, available both in theaters and in virtual cinemas, appropriately. So folks can hopefully walk down to their theater to check it out. But if not, it will be available at home, right? That's just what you got to do today. Yes, it, it, in, a, in a limited way, yes. So last question, in what ways does your release of this film test and challenge some of what you're, you're prescribing here in this conversation? In what ways does it, does it inform or belie sort of what we're navigating and dealing with in 2021, perhaps due to the pandemic, perhaps due to the, the fact that film is not in the center of our culture in the way it once was? For you personally, and you're you're, you're wearing a different. You've worn a lot of hats over 45 years. You're wearing a slightly different one today. Yeah, that's. A, I mean, that's a great question, and I'm glad you asked it because I am trying to show people what's possible. And I I don't I don't necessarily think it's going to work to the extent that it's going to make a ton of money or you know any of that kind of stuff. I'm too realistic for that. Uh, given my background, I think people would think I had gone off the deep end if I really thought I had a hit on my hands. It's a, it's a small movie for a very select audience, but, um, but I am trying to make as much noise as I possibly can. And it includes everything from 
the fact that I'm releasing it theatrically as a benefit for art house theaters. So 100% of the box office is kept by the theaters and I'm not taking a penny of it. And, you know, why am I doing that? I mean, first of all, I want to support the art house theaters, but also it makes the film newsworthy. It gives people a reason to want to go see it. So there's the legitimate part of it. And then there's the, the hype part of it, which is an important aspect of it. I've done some experimental things like I've created a, a scavenger hunt, a game that you play on your cell phone uh, that uh, allows you to try to find the locations of all the original Rugoff theaters. And we've planted QR codes in all those locations so that people can actually try to find them, get credit for having done the whole circuit if they manage to find them all. But also every time you click on one of those QR codes, it comes up and tells you the history of that theater and shows you pictures of it. You know, I'm just trying to, to channel Rugoff's thinking in terms of how he would have handled a film like this. And, uh, and, and it's been fun to do that. I have a, some interns working with me who I think are learning a lot. You know, they come up with ideas that I would never have come up with and they've seen the movie. So hopefully it inspired them to, again, think outside the box. So yeah, I mean, who knows whether it'll have any impact whatsoever, but it's not gonna be for lack of trying. Uh, searching for Mr. Rugoff, filmmaker Ira Deutschman. If folks wanna get more information, where can they go? To mrrugoff.com, but it's M-R-R-U-G-O-F-F.com. Uh, Ira Deutschman, thank you for joining us on the Film Comment Podcast this week. My pleasure, thanks for having me. The Film Comment Podcast features original music by Greg Einge. Film Comment is a publication of film at Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has been the home of independent film journalism, publishing in-depth interviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, arthouse, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com.